Welcome to Inside the Rope, a podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and this episode we're speaking with Susan Garone of Goldman Sachs. Susan is Managing Director in Alternative Capital Markets and Strategy for Goldman Sachs, and we talk to her about private markets. We've got a little bit of a theme in the podcast lately. We've had a few different guests talking about private markets. This is due to the fact that I think there's really not a lot of high understanding, a lot of apprehension, and a lot of misunderstanding about private markets. And also, I think for a lot of high net worth individuals, it represents a good opportunity generally for them to earn excess returns uh, if they can handle the liquidity. Please remember this podcast isn't specific advice, nor is it designed to be. People are encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and also to seek their own advice prior to making any potential investments. Please keep the emails coming through to me. Suggestions for guests and other suggestions are all very welcome. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Susan Goran, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Fantastic. And you're joining us uh, from New York, I believe. Um, uh, can I get you, for our listeners, just to give us an introduction to who you are? So I'm Suzanne Gorin. I'm the head of private equity strategies in asset management at Goldman Sachs. I've been at Goldman Sachs for 21 years, actually half my life. Um, and I've been an investor in private equity for that entire time. And so I've seen an enormous number of changes and a lot of growth in this market. So now if, if my internet snooping is right, um, I think you might also be um, a New England Patriots fan as well. I am. You, you have done some snooping. So I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. I went to school at Harvard uh, down the street. Uh, I always say I picked the school closest to home. And uh, yes, I'm a very significant um, Boston sports fan, which until a couple of years ago was a very good run. And now we're getting the other side of the coin a little bit. I think they call it rebuilding. Uh, <laughs> so tell me a little bit about, I, I noticed you studied, I think it was history and literature. Um, yes, so I, yeah, I studied tell- 18th century poetry and um, Latin and ancient Greek in college. Um, I come from a family of teachers and I never thought um, about business. I didn't know about business when I was in school uh, and I loved what I studied. Uh, and then I realized one day that I needed a job um, and I happened to have my first interview for a job be at Goldman Sachs. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get a job there. Uh, I tell a lot of young people that Goldman really doesn't hire based on um, technical training. They hire based on potential. And I was certainly that since I hadn't taken math course since high school. Um, but, you know, I found a, a seat at Goldman that was very research oriented and it had a lot of similarities to what I had studied in school, which was you take a project, you break it down long term, uh, you develop a hypothesis, you brought and you collect primary source data to test that hypothesis. Uh, and the rest is history. Well, I think you, uh, you, you're being quite humble there saying that you just chose the school close to you and then you know, happened to wander into Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, uh, I think if people rank and order these things, you, you've probably uh, gone to the top of the pops two times over. So uh, well done f- 
for you, but you, I think you also went back to business school at Harvard as well. I did. So uh, I, I was sort of at the end of the generation where if you were in finance, you absolutely went to business school. That's really changed in the 20 years since I went to business school. But um, for me, I thought I did a couple of years at, at um, Goldman. I had learned a lot, but I didn't have that technical foundation that some of my peers had. And so it was a good time to go back to school, but I assumed it would be like graduate school in the liberal arts. And it was very, very different from that, um, but an incredible experience for me. And I say the thing that many people say, which is it's, it's a training that's much more useful now in the middle of my career than it was right when I came out of business school, um, but it served me very well. And you have a number of other hats that you wear and a number of other philanthropic things that you're involved in. Can you give us a little bit of insight into those, please? Yeah, so uh, I have a, a passion project as well, which is that I'm also the head of Launch with GS at Goldman Sachs, which is our $1 billion investment initiative focused on backing companies and investment managers that are started by women, Black, and Latinx individuals who are extremely underrepresented in financial markets um, in, in investing women receive less than 2%, uh, sorry, less than 3% of venture capital funding and black and Latinx founders receive less than 1%. And we felt at Goldman that as large global investors who are important to the financial systems, that we can make a statement about what a good investment opportunity we believe investing in diverse teams is. And so we've been doing that initiative for four years. We've invested over $900 million in uh, 56 companies and, and firms at last count, um, and something I'm incredibly passionate about. Uh, and it's not actually philanthropic, but I do do some other philanthropic activities, um, including sitting on the board of an organization focused on employment for students with disabilities who are uh, severely underemployed when they come out of school, as well as uh, an organization in New York that focuses on housing for unhoused women and children. Wow. Well, we're all feeling uh, a little inadequate here now. So congratulations. And we look forward to speaking to you over the next 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, private markets, can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about how you and Goldman Sachs view private markets and how you define them and what you see as some of the key differentiators to more publicly traded assets that many people are used to? Definitely. I think one of the things that's underappreciated about private markets, even using that term, um, most of the time when we talk, we talk about private equity or we talk about venture capital, private markets is really the expansive term that covers all types of assets that are held in a private illiquid structure. And so some of the more well understood or well known strategies within that would include private equity, where you're buying um, for the long-term investments in profitable companies or venture capital where you're making long-term investments in very early stage, typically unprofitable businesses that are highly speculative. But when you think of other private assets, it's very expansive. And over my 20 year career, um, this has you know, doubled many times over. Um, so some other very large areas of um, private markets would include private real estate. Um, so basically unlisted real estate um, where you can hold for the long term for value accretion as well as potential yield. Private credit, which is a very significant asset class that has developed really over the last decade um, since the global financial crisis. 
um, where people are getting excess yield in exchange for very custom lending um, that used to be done by the banks. And then you have infrastructure, which I know many of uh, your listeners in Australia will be very familiar with, but there's a variety of different infrastructure strategies in a long-term private context where you can hold assets that will generate value over years, if not decades. And so those are some of the larger areas of private markets. But I think one of the reasons that people find this area to be somewhat opaque is that the the language is changing and the definitions are changing. Um, one of the exciting things has been that private markets have really responded to the needs of capital markets over the last two decades when there's been a lot of change. But that does mean there's a lot to keep up with. And it's very hard to measure because it, by nature of being private, the data is very limited in, in its reporting. You can't look up an index for any of these areas. Now, I think Goldman's has done quite a bit of work around the potential or possible excess returns that investors can expect by exposing themselves to this asset class. Do you want to maybe talk about that a little bit? Sure. So this is a question we get very frequently from our clients uh, is, is there excess return in private markets? And the answer that we find from our own data and also well supported by academic sources is that yes, there is excess return to be generated in private markets. The way that's typically been referred to in the past is the illiquidity premium. That if you're going to lock up your money for a long period of time, you should be receiving more return in exchange for doing that um, relative to investing in the public markets where you can change your mind at any time. Uh, you know, there's varying academic views on whether the excess return in private markets can all be attributed to the illiquidity premium, because some of that is stopping you from selling when you shouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of saving you from yourself is, is part of what's implicit in the illiquidity premium. And that is true. It means that um, you should think about making investments very seriously before you make them, because you're not going to be able to reverse that decision without significant cost. But when we look at the data, um, the other criticism that we see is sometimes, well, the only reason the private markets um, do generate excess return is that there's more leverage in that asset. So if you buy uh, a company stock in the public markets, not every company, but on average, that company may have less leverage than the company you're buying with a private equity investor. Mm -hmm. Now we've, te we we've tested that, many academics have tested that, and that is not the source of excess re um, return in private markets, even correcting for levels of leverage, which it's important to understand what they are, there's still excess return. So what we see as being fundamental um, is long-term value creation in the assets is the main driver of excess return. Um, and that is that, uh, when you can own a company, own a piece of real estate um, or an infrastructure project for a long period of time, you have different incentives about how you can grow that asset than if you are the CEO of a public company who has to report your earnings every quarter. And so you can do things with that company that take longer to generate value, but over the long term will transform that company. And that's really how we think about private markets. And especially when we think about the next 10 year period, the most important thing is gonna be how your managers are growing and transforming the companies that they own and what tools they have to do that in a very competitive world. Um, so we're very focused on that. 
And then the last thing I'll say about excess return in private markets that's essential is that um, there is a wider dispersion of return in private market strategies than there is in public markets. And so, you know, the difference between choosing a very good equity mutual fund manager and a pretty bad one is narrow in terms of return. The difference between a very good and not very good private equity, private real estate infrastructure manager is much wider. And so it's very hard to buy the average return in private markets, but you shouldn't go into private markets to buy the average return. You need to seek out managers who are in the top quartile in order to capture that return because it's not um, evenly distributed across managers in the asset classes. And I think if I'm right, some of the literature and data I've seen produced by Goldman's is that that excess returns probably running in the order of three to five percent per annum, uh, you know, over a two, three, five, ten year period. We've seen that's the data we've seen um, really for private equity. Um, and so what, if you look at the five, 10 and 15 year periods, and it's important to look at different periods so that we're not just cherry picking and clients are very focused on whether that return carried through the global financial crisis. Uh, we see that 300 to 500 basis points of outperformance. It varies a little bit in other asset, asset classes or sub asset classes like venture capital, private, um, private real estate, depending on the risk level. Um, but that is how in general we think about private equity. Now, maybe if I get you to talk a little bit about each of the different subsectors of the private markets in which you're active. And I think if I'm right, the industry really came out of leverage buyouts, in, which, you know, you had sort of 90% gearing of, of companies were, were, were sort of bought out, you know, delisted and then, and then brought back. But since then, it's really evolved greatly. And this is somewhere a lot of sovereign wealth funds, a lot of very large um, private offices have invested in. This is all becoming, you know, the word I'm hearing now is becoming democratised and, and that more and more people are getting access to this asset class. But can you talk a little bit about the characteristics that you see and some of the things people should be looking for in each one of those sort of um, verticals, if you'd like? Certainly. So, um, as you say, many of the largest and most sophisticated investors in the world are among the largest players in private markets and really have been market leaders in defining and opening up some of these new areas and partnering with managers who carved out these spaces. Um, you're right. Uh, private markets really started uh, with leverage buyouts in the 1980s in, in New York City. And, you know, there's some iconic images that we all know from, from movies going back to those times. Private equity has evolved enormously since that time. So it was buying companies, um, you know, sometimes breaking them up, putting an enormous amount of leverage on, on them. Um, since that time, the asset class has expanded massively and there's a huge amount of specialization now. Um, and so we see managers who invest in spe specialized regions, specialized sectors, um, you know, very specific company sizes or strategies where they, they specialize potentially in things like digital transformation. So there's just a proliferating number of, of flavors um, in this business. And I, I ran our, our private equity business for a while. We would see hundreds of managers every year. Um, but, you know, really today, the, the business is about identifying um, 
you know, sometimes great companies, sometimes good companies, and sometimes poor companies, putting a reasonable amount of leverage on them and figuring out how to improve their operations or change their structure and approach to make them more valuable to the next owner. And the next owner could be in the public markets, it could be another private equity sponsor, or it could be selling to a strategic. So it's an even private equity is an incredibly diversified asset class. Um, but what you're really doing is you're taking profitable companies that can afford to pay down their leverage and you're growing their asset value over time. So you're generating your value through organic and inorganic growth at the company. Um, then you have venture capital, which I'm sure many people are familiar with. You know, it's been on our front pages over the last decade, probably the most popular asset class in the world, um, if I can tell from kids coming out of college wanting to get jobs. Uh, and that's really the most speculative end of private markets, which is backing a company or sometimes even an idea um, that hasn't been proven yet. Um, what you see in private equity is um, very few companies that are incredibly valuable at the end of that process. So, you know, you could lose money on seven out of the 10 companies that you invest in um, because they end up not being a good idea or somebody does it a little bit better. Um, but the company that might come out the other end might be a unicorn where it's worth a billion dollars or more. 15 years later or 10 years later. And, and many Australians, are, you know, the barbecue conversation or the topical co company in Australia is Canva, um, you know, the yes. homegrown unicorn. And also we'll talk a little bit more about the revaluation type of thing because that's been all over the paper. But, okay, that's a good example for Australians. So uh, private real estate and, you know, uh, Australia is a great real estate market. So I'm sure you have lots of domestic examples of this. Um, but private real estate is holding any type of private asset um, for the long term. And many of the comments I made about private equity can be equally applied to buildings as to companies, which is how do you grow, improve, revalue re this company um, or this building um, based on the actions that you take over a period of years. You might take a, a middling quality retail asset or residential asset or office asset and through a variety of actions to lease to new people, um, improve the, the fixtures, improve the positioning of, of the um, building, um, make that building more valuable uh, and more occupied um, with an eye to selling it again, either maybe to a listed vehicle um, or to a strategic acquire on the other end after three to five years. And in the meantime, one of the benefits for the investors in private real estate is that you you are owning yielding assets that are paying out cash flow to the investors, um, which is you know particularly attractive sometimes um, to individual investors who like seeing that cash flow coming back to them. Um, and then on the credit side, um, you know this is probably the biggest, but also the newest area of private assets, which um, really was filling in the gap after the regulation changed on the banks after 2008, and a variety of companies of different sizes needed new sources of lending. And this um, could be, you know, just your your basic loans to keep your your company going for the long term that you carry for multiple years, or it could be something incredibly flexible. You're thinking about acquiring a new business and you need a very um, 
customized lender who will lend to you ahead of buying this new business and they don't know how these businesses are going to combine well yet and so they're getting well paid for taking that risk and so it's um, an area where new firms have sprung up in in large size over a few years and they really go out and they reach large companies mid-sized companies um, and are really being their partner um, in in lending to them the same way the private equity firms are their partner in owning the equity in those businesses. Um, and it's, it's a very exciting area. You see all levels of risk return within private credit from things that can be mid-teens returns that feel pretty close to equity, um, you know, to uh, mid-single digits returns. But, you know, what you, what you think is that you're getting an excess return for providing this very flexible capital that's matched to the business, as opposed to just going to a bank who says, you know, fill in this form and everybody gets the same deal. Well, we've and seen that. Also- yeah. Listeners to the podcast will be familiar. We've had a number of managers in that space, uh, in that private debt or private credit space. And we've really seen the big four Australian banks become experts at doing home loans that are very homogeneous, but anything that falls outside of that's kind of too hard, which has created this opportunity. Exactly. And, and I think no one appreciated a decade ago how big that opportunity was. And uh, it's a very creative space. And for investors in the space, you're also getting yield, which, you know, similar to uh, private real estate is really attractive. And then I won't spend too much time on infrastructure because I'm sure there are listeners who know it better than I do. But, you know, the longest duration part of private markets um, where you're buying assets for 10 to 20 year durations. When private um, infrastructure started 20 years ago with the big pension plans, it was really owning you know, real estates, toll roads, airports. It's really evolved a lot in the last decade. And the understanding of what infrastructure is has really evolved. Um, so now today there's things that we data, all- Data centers. Data centers, um, fiber, you know, the mm-hmm. ability to get your Wi-Fi at your house faster and better. I think I would agree that that's an essential service I'll never not pay for. And so now that's infrastructure. Well, if, you, if really you've got a- children and you've traveled, you'll discovered how, how, how <laughs> uh, necessary that is to life, I'm being told. Yes. Yeah. So those are, that's a quick tour of, of some of the areas. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a very expansive space. Um, and within that, there's really new areas being invented every time there's a market cycle you alluded to the market crunch and we're going through and that's going to generate new creative opportunities for different flexible types of capital and what what are some some of the attributes people looking to gain exposure in this space if they're choosing managers what are the things that you would encourage them to think about in terms of identifying them you've spoken about the disparity of returns that you see in the private markets from various managers, whereas in in the public markets, you know, you could argue that there's a lot of sort of, you know, index hugging going on and managers saying, well, we we really don't like this company, so we're half it. You know, they still own it, but they don't like it. You know, who, who figured? Um, tell me, what, what should people be thinking about or what should they have on their checklist or what are some of the red flags, you know, they, they should be looking out for? I wish I I could give the positive formula because I spent years picking managers, but it's actually more of just, I'd say, the the things to know about the space. The first is, we always joke, everyone's top quartile. So one of the (laughs) things about private markets is that there's very few data sets to compare yourselves to, and they're um, very 
thin or uneven, let's call it. And so it's, you know, if you're looking to tell a story of how you're doing well, there's a way to plug it into the data set and have that answer come out. And so, um, you know, we emphasized with clients that it's very important to do your own diligence and have your own sources of data to double check that. It's not that somebody's not telling you the truth, but it's that there's so many pieces of data that can be presented in different ways that you've got to understand how they're presenting it, why they're presenting it that way, and does it align with your goals? So if somebody says, I'm top quartile on IRR, you know, you may not value IRR as an investor. You may really want your money um, to accrue on a multiple money basis. And then you really need to do your own work on how they stack up on a multiple money basis. So that's, you know, a precondition is if you've seen a few hundred pitch books, you, you hear this story. Is what I've said about all of these sub-asset classes. And it's very hard to be a tourist in all of these different areas. Um, and so, you know, I would encourage people to think about their core portfolio before they get too far outside of that. And so why are you investing in private markets? What strategies within private markets are best for you? If you're highly speculative, that might be venture capital. If you're looking for um, exposure that's diversifying to your public markets, it may be more in the growth equity and buyout space or um, it might be in some of the yielding assets like private uh, real estate and private credit. But, you know, can you think about directing your capital towards a handful of opportunities where you really feel like you understand them rather than, you know, getting um, sort of distracted by the whole menu that's out there that I have to tell you really never ends. I mean, there's new firms being formed every week. Um, and so, you know, the, the job of the, of the diligence team looking at funds just never ends. And can we talk a little bit about, you know, we've talked about a lot of the positives and what are some of the things that you've seen? And, and one of the criticisms I hear is, and, you know, one of the things, you know, frankly, many of investors that I know and, and advise like the fact that the returns come through in a lot less volatile way. And the natural criticism of that is, well, you know, they're not valued every minute, every second as they are on public markets. And you get a, you know, listeners in Australia, for instance, would be very well aware of Macquarie Bank and the quality of their um, infrastructure assets globally and, and their listed funds in that area. They'd also be familiar with, you know, a small um, private, a smaller private fund that we've had on called Palisade, which has great assets, which I'd say are very similar assets. And if we look at how both of those different funds, one being listed and one being private, behaved during COVID, you know, the listed vehicle traded down sort of 20% in a month and the unlisted vehicle, you know, had a quarterly valuation based on cash flows. And, you know, if the markets moved a little bit, the multiples might have moved a little bit. So it, 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 barely moved at all and the income kept coming through whilst there was this roller coaster ride for the public vehicle. So, you know, there's a lot of conversation about regulation and if people, you know, that excess return they're getting, they're exposing themselves to far less regulation um, and, and, you know, there's some of the risks involved in that. What, what are your views on that? So, the, there's a very fundamental fact of life and being in illiquid private assets, which is what's called lagging and smoothing. And this has been well studied, which is that um, valuations are slower to come through in private markets. And because you get fewer observations once a month or once a quarter, 
it's smoothed, which means that, you know, during COVID, we saw this phenomenon very well, right? Um, you know, in June 2020, the world was not in a good place. The public markets were not in a good place. But by the time valuations were issued for the June period for private assets, we already knew it was August, September, things were getting better. And so you didn't have to recognize that quite so much because you had more information by the time you had to issue that valuation. And so it's, you know, economists have arguments around, you know, are, are, is the volatility here real because it's only the observed volatility based on four data points a year versus the economic volatility of the assets, which we know it doesn't really matter whether you're trading the asset or not. It should be performing in the same way in terms of operating performance and its value to the next owner of that business. So those are those are functional aspects of being in private markets that, that we observe. And we're seeing that right now. You know, we're getting a lot of questions about why private equity um, assets have not been marked down significantly on the whole so far this year, given all the things we know about our public markets portfolios. And the answer is those managers don't have to sell that company today. So if you had to sell that company today, it would probably be worth a different value. But their expectation is that they will hold that company for two, three, four more years. The company is operating well. It's paying its interest on um, whatever debt it has on it. And so the manager still says, I, I think it's it's worth that price or close to that price. But you know, as consumers of a lot of different asset classes, it's hard to hold those ideas in your head uh, consistently. And it's something that sometimes on the upside when markets are going very well and you say, why isn't that asset worth more? And sometimes on the downside, it's, it's the same experience. Um, but that's the smoothing through cycles. You won't see the, the great upside when the assets are unrealized, and you won't see the, the great downside for the most part unless the asset is troubled. The other thing which I've alluded to, but it's worth talking about, is the illiquidity. Um, and you know, when I have a new client that's thinking about moving to private markets for the first time, we really have to sit down and say, are you sure you still want to own this in five years? Because two years, three years, four years, yeah, probably. But you know, it's hard to imagine five to eight years from there. Then it is very hard to exit private markets assets. Um, there is a secondary market in some of the deeper asset classes, private equity, some in private real estate, some in infrastructure, but it is not like public markets. You can't call the manager and say, I'd like my money back. Um, and there's no discoverable price for that. So if you're going to sell to the very rare buyer that is qualified to buy it, um, it's very hard to assign what price you might receive for it. And it's typical to accept a discount to the value you're holding those assets at when you sell um, before the natural liquidation of the fund. And then the other thing to mention, um, and I'll speak about private equity because I have the data on hand, is you know, in private equity, it's spoken about as a 10-year asset class. Another little secret, if you actually look at the data, the asset class actually averages 14 and a half years. Um, and so when we say it's a while before you get your money back, we really mean it. I think that's very helpful. And I think your comments around, um, you know, expectation and people selling now, my experience is, you know, avoiding, you know, deaths, births, marriages, big life changes that happen. Um, the other the thing I'd see is 
from experience is when people actually want to sell and say, oh, no, I've changed my mind on this investment I want out is the exact time everybody else is thinking that as well. So the the price they're going to get in any secondary market is going to be an absolute haircut, if at all. Um, In terms of regulation, do you see more regulation coming for private markets? So, I mean, I, I just am a, a practitioner. I don't have any particular insights. I, I know there's a lot of experts out there who, who follow this. I think in general, um, in the U.S., there's a focus on transparency and consistency. One of the things you'll find as an investor in private markets um, is that it is very surprising relative to, to being a consumer of other asset classes, how dissimilar all the reporting is, um, how the managers in general have very broad leeway over what information they share and in what format. And you know that's challenging for investors. It puts all of the cost, whether it's economic or just you know your time on the investor. And in the US in particular, um, you know there's a focus on um, making that more consistent, uh, transparent, um, and that those are all especially in light of this, democratization of the asset class, I think the asset class will will grow um, with some of those steps in place. Um, But it's a large and complex asset class. And so, you know, it it, it takes a while to address that in a bespoke way for all of these areas that we're speaking about. And can you tell us uh, a little bit about how you're thinking about private markets in light of the current economic uh, outlook that we're facing, which, you know, in many ways, you know, for many investors who have been active over the last few decades will not have seen this before. Um, interest rates, um, inflation, um, these sort of things are more in common to people like me from textbooks and, and reading and studying the 70s. Um, how, how are yourself and Goldman's thinking about where opportunities and where dangers lie given the economic outlook? Definitely. The first thing is there's just a lot of uncertainty on what the economic outlook is. Just, you know, if you look at what the rate curve in the U.S. was two weeks ago versus today, you know, I would have given you a slightly answer just two weeks ago. So, you know, I think our baseline view is, you know, there will be a recession in Europe that isn't already happening right now. Mm -hmm. Um, In the U.S., you know, there's something on the order of a 35 to 40 percent chance of recession, but that's a very complicated middle ground to navigate. Um, And then, you know, there's all of the supply chain um, and inflation pressures that we're seeing globally. Um, You know, we would say that it right now, in general, there's always micro pockets of opportunity, but it's a time to be cautious because as long-term investors, we don't get a do-over. Um, and so we'd rather be a little bit late than a little bit early. And, you know, I remember this personally very vividly from 2008, you know, if you were a public markets investor in 2008, um, you know, I, you, you hope you did something in Q4 of 08, Q1 of 09, our opportunity really came throughout 09, 2010, 2011, and it had a very long tail to it. And so, you know, I think this is one of those moments where, we have to look to the long term in private markets. And I think that what we're seeing is that um, whatever happens in 2023, um, you know, we continue to expect that private markets will outperform public markets um, in the face of pressures that will be infiltrating 
these markets, whether you're private or public. So I'd rather own a private company dealing with supply chain and inflation than a public company having to do the same thing. You know, we think there may be some pressures in the medium term on absolute returns, you know, just given rates, um, but the outperformance that you can generate should still be there relative to the public markets. Um, you know, our teams are really focused on areas that are more inflation protected at the moment. So, um, you know, infrastructure, areas of real estate that have performed, which would include um, some areas of multifamily housing, specifically in the U.S., as well as logistics and industrial, um, and then healthcare, you know, and other um, services that are really important, and then technology, and not just venture capital, but um, mature technology companies are a really important part of our investing space. And when we think about growth and efficiency in all of our lives and all of the things we consume over the next 10 years, that will be really important, no matter what public markets do this quarter or next quarter. So those are some areas we're focused on, but you know, we think it's in general a time for some level of caution. Um, you know, there's a lot of unknowns that we're watching uh, today, and we think it's a really good time um, to be a part of a large organization where we can draw insights from around the world um, and you know look at different areas, not just in one country or in one sector uh, for those opportunities. Susan, thank you. I think that's been a wonderful uh, insight for our listeners. I will give you the right of, of the last word. If there's anything that you would like to add before I thank you and, 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 and say goodbye and let you get on with your evening. Um, is there anything you'd like to add for our listeners? No, thank you very much for having me. It was uh, exciting to be on and I look forward to visiting Australia again soon. We look forward to seeing you down here. Thank you very much for joining us Inside the Rope, Susan. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.